Yeah. yeah, who is it? I think it's Denver or is it Chicago? The That's mascot right. does the backwards. Yeah. Uh... That's always in the fourth quarter in Chicago. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's fun. Yeah. He, he makes them more often than you'd, you'd think. Yeah, it usually yeah. takes him like five or yeah. six tries. Yeah. But... I think this tea's old. <laughs> He's here. Hey, Fred. Hi, that's Sean. Hi, Arlen. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Wiseman Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Glynis, and I'm here with my co-host, Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? I'm beaming, Sean. I'm, okay. I'm vibrating with <laughs> tingly beams. Um, so we have today a guest to talk about Fred Wiseman's work, um, named Fred Wiseman. And... Uh, yeah, I don't know. We just got done with it. I feel I feel a bit like Mark Maron, like recording like the first twenty minutes <laughs> right, uh, yeah. of of the thing. But instead of talking about like my relationship issues, we'll just talk about <laughs> what it was like, I guess, uh, to interview Fred, which uh, I guess came about by just like general curiosity. But also, we're kind of using it as this like capstone on these first twelve films, uh, Tadika Follies through Model, and tried to focus the interview. Uh, as as a, a bit of a capsule of those and, and focus on those movies. But um, how do you think it went, Arlen? You know, I, I did a lot of research going into this of previous Weissman interviews, um, and you see a lot of similar ideas expressed throughout them over the years, especially interviewers asking the same questions, Fred giving the same answers, and often him saying he doesn't like interviews. Um, so, you know, th this was not the first time for either of us speaking to Fred, um, but s still that's something in the back of your head going into it that is hard to shake. Um, but I feel like, uh, you know, that that research paid off, and I'll... I'll, I'll take the compliment from Fred that uh, we did our homework, um, but you know I think I think we we were able to elicit a lot of new uh, insights that that I have yet to encounter elsewhere. Yeah, I think the point uh, or part of the research was kind of going back through our research on these first twelve films and thinking about the questions that we had that we would have asked had we been able to interview him for each one of them, which sounds like. Uh, that would be <laughs> That's terrifying, how but, but um, uh, so it 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 kind of also works as like all of these floating questions, uh, also in that like capstone type of feel. But um, but yeah, the the object when interviewing Fred uh, is to keep him from going into those pat answers, um, right. keep him from like obfuscating and. Uh, that it, it is a bit nerve wracking. Like, I think, I don't think he is, he's not, um, 
is he, I want to say he's not intimidating to talk to. It's more of just like a challenge. It still is a challenge, um, but he's also very fun to talk to in, in the same way that his films are very fun. Yeah, I I don't th- I would agree. It's 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 kind of like a game a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's how how it felt, and you like you kind of know if you you're scoring points or if if you're you you bricked it. Um, yeah, yeah. And and you know, uh, to his credit, he he keeps you doing the job you're supposed to be doing right, and and asking him insightful questions uh, to allow him the opportunity to give insightful responses um as uh, our listeners will will hear a few times throughout yeah for sure and um i don't know i i i, I don't want to give away a lot about the interview in terms of things that i thought were interesting um because i want them to come out naturally but for listeners but i i think that there will definitely be things that we heard here that we'll be able to use uh looking ahead uh on those films kind of like better understanding his process in ways that we maybe hadn't heard before um and the way that he thinks about his own films yeah i mean you know it's uh certainly not a frequent occurrence that you have a show named after a guy and the guy comes on that show to talk (laughs) to you yeah yeah Um, yeah and, this this and, this definitely wasn't a plan of ours uh, from the from the beginning. No, yeah, it was, it was a, a kind of happy occurrence. But I think, you know, for me at least, uh, it, it was a validating experience. You know, I think a few times we brought things up uh, where he more or less said, "Yeah, you know, you're on the money," um, and just um, the way we are engaging with and approaching and evaluating his films seems to be relatively in line with the way he thinks about them and, and goes about making them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And then there are other times where, uh, you just feel like you're on the Chris Farley show and, Was it cool uh, when you were at Bridgewater and uh, the guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, uh, excited for you all to hear this, and uh, ho- hopefully, uh, we have another opportunity somewhere down the line uh, through the next chunk of films as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we won't keep you any longer, so I hope that you enjoy our our chat with uh, Frederick Wiseman um, about the first 12 films of his career. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, pleasure. I'm a bit... I haven't been feeling very well. I'm a bit tired, but otherwise, other than that, I'm all right. Well, we appreciate you giving your your time uh, late on sorry, a Sunday. Sorry about this afternoon, but I tried to connect, and I couldn't. And uh, I'm glad it's working now. Yeah, I have no doubts. You you gave it the old college try, but yeah, happy to have you here with us now for sure. And uh, we're excited to talk. Yeah, happy you could you can make time late on a Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so we we kind of have like some 
general questions to ask you and then we also have some more like like specific questions about these first like 12 films of yours um since on our program that's what we've covered so far um so we're gonna start with the general questions if that's all right with you yeah um so i guess first uh what 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 have you been up to? You, I, know, I know you've you've described the the period after completing and releasing a film as sort of like this postpartum depression, and given um, the last couple of years uh, not being able to work uh, at least at the level that you probably want to, um, can you describe kind of like how that's been going for you? Well, it, it's been difficult. Uh, I've been bored out of my mind. Last spring, I did a fiction film, which I just finished. Uh, called a couple, uh, and uh, I just finished the color grading and the uh, uh, and the mix and the subtitles. Uh, it's a film done in French, uh, and uh, about to send it off to festivals with the hope that it will have its premiere at you know one of the at Cannes or Venice or something like that. Was it nice to be working again then? Oh, it was great. It was great. But, uh, you know, the film was shot in May and I basically finished the editing in September. Then I did the mix and the color grading in December and the uh, subtitles in January. It's a feature? Feature length? Short. Short, short. short. Looking forward to that. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, since we have you here on an interview, you know, Sean and I have have gone pretty deep into available materials and and engaging with uh, these films we'll be discussing today. And uh, one of one of the favorites we've come across is a couple of radio uh, pieces you did with Studs Terkel. Um, Oh, long time. Yeah, we have juvenile court and welfare. Yeah, go. go Studs was a great man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, I think there's some very obvious relationship between the work Studs did and, and your project. Um, but, you know, I was I was curious if, if you had any sort of ongoing relationship beyond those interviews, given that you didn't uh, keep doing them when films came out. With Studs? Yeah. No, no, the, uh, those are the only times that I, I did them when I was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think over the years we occasionally exchanged emails, but that that was the only contact I had with him. They're 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 a blast to listen to. You guys seem to speak the same language uh, and have some uh, like similar. Yeah, we both, we both speak English. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean, you know, not only do we both speak English, but I think we reject sort of garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of garbage language associated with filmmaking and uh, and interviewing, and um, yeah, I think we shared a common distaste for that. Huh. Um, over over this series, like us and and our guests have have really enjoyed like linking your works to um, fictional film like genres. Uh, sometimes, like you know, the war film with basic training or maneuver, or like sci-fi and horror with primate or uh, there's obvious like Western um, hat tips in with with meat, the bookends in meat. Um, so, how conscious are you about drawing these comparisons or being influenced by like broader film canon? Well, you know, um, 
I'm certain, I mean, I like to think I'm conscious of them, uh, uh, but it's mainly, you know, whether I'm influenced by them is another matter. Uh, when you see cowboys and cows, you can't help but think of Westerns. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 but before I made the movie, I didn't know that I was going to find cowboys and cows. Right. I came across them as a result of going out to Greeley and seeing what was happening at, you know, uh, at at the uh, the Montford Company. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, you know, it, it, I mean that's an example. Uh, the cows and the cowboys is an example of what happens all the time. I mean, you come across sequences and I have to, I have to think I understand them and I have to recognize them for whatever value I think they may have in the structure of the film that's evolving. And, and when we talked about me, we talked a lot about like, how it reflects ideas about the myth of America at that time and it coming out during the bicentennial. Um, was that, is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of these, these connections? Were, yeah. were you thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, but I, I wasn't so much thinking about that before the film. Right. It was, it occurred to me in the course of the editing, you know, mm -hmm. before I started meet, I mean, which, and it's true of all the films, I, you know, basically my only deep thought is, uh, this is, I think this is a good subject. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, because I have no idea what I, I'm, what my experience is going to be, what sequences I'm going to find. And it's, the film emerges as, in part as a response to what I find and my capacity to think about what I find and the implications of the sequences I choose to use and the way I edit them and the way I place them. Yeah. So, I mean, just by, by virtue of making movies and, uh, there being other movies out there with similar iconography, you're saying that the connections are really kind of just inherent to the material more so than anything you're trying to put forth. Is that accurate? Oh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm trying to figure out the fairest way to put it. I'm aware of the connections, but I don't think I'm burdened by the connections. Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, speak, speaking of editing, and I mean, you know, we've we've gone through a lot and, and have seen how you talk about, you know, this is where the films really come together. Um, your films being very dense and working on multiple levels of meaning, one of the the pillars for us in guiding this project has been um, Thomas Benson and Carolyn Anderson's book, reality fictions. Uh, and in that they say there's, there's every, every sequence uh, in your films is um, indicative of this has, has different multiple levels of meaning. Nothing is in there. Just that saying one thing only you do. Do you feel that's a fair assessment? Yeah. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the things that pops up a lot too that we've talked about is um, the idea of performance. Um, 
it could be, you know, like the monkey's sexual performance in, in primate for, for scientists, uh, whether they know it or not. Or, uh, you know, there's that great scene in hospital with the young gay black man and th these ideas about performing like this masculine ideal. Um, and then like something like maneuver and model, which are very much about performance on a very literal level. Um, wh why do you think performance is such an integral aspect of your work? Well, uh, I, because I think if you're lucky enough, when you make these movies, you come across some spectacular performances. Uh, and, and it's not that I've set them up or written them. Mm -hmm. I, I've been fortunate enough to be there when they occur and, and I'm prepared to have them recorded. Uh, and, uh, you know, often I think of their significance at the moment. Sometimes, uh, I only think of their significance later when I have a chance to study the material. I mean, it depends on the sequence. I mean, the, the sequence of the man at the end of welfare who talks about Godot. I mean, that's, you know, it's a great stroke of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, to come across that, it's my job as an editor to to use it to to recognize that it's a great stroke of luck, and to find a way of using it uh, in a way that I think works. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that scene because as I revisit welfare, like that that scene is talked about a lot in scholarship, but. The part that I come away from really cherishing about that is the zoom out and you see this woman next <laughs> next to this guy who yeah. just thinks that he's like just clearly wants him to stop talking. Um, well, she's clearly embarrassed by what he's saying. <laughs> she, yeah. she, she makes a gesture. Uh, uh, -huh. uh she may, the expression on her face changes. And and that's that that zoom out to reveal that to show that there's a little bit more going on there is just very funny and uh, uh, I yeah it, it's a great way to um, I, I think people just like to focus on exactly what he's saying in that scene rather than like the broader scope of just being in that room and how annoying it can be to be there when somebody is going on rambling about that kind of thing. Um, and you know we've talked talking about continuing this thread of of common uh elements throughout your body of work um you know with a few notable exceptions uh we are regularly treated to scenes about religion and you know specifically christianity um and i've read um well well first you know you always say the films are a report of what you experienced in a given institution. But as we know, the vast majority of what you experienced doesn't end up in the final cut. So, so I would assume that there has to be, you know, some intentionality and in why, why religion is, is key for you. And, uh, in, in, um, the MoMA book, you, you write about growing up in this environment of, um, routine anti-Semitism and kind of being othered, um, uh, uh, in Boston, I'm curious. Do you, do you see a link uh, between that experience and this interest in Christianity, or or what? What? Well, I mean, 
I, I've in my personal life, I've never been very religious in the sense that I, I that I've gone to synagogue and worshipped. I mean, I, sure. I uh, but you know, when you travel around America for a bit, as I've done in making the films, you. I realized that America, it's something that I didn't really realize before I began to travel a lot in America, what a religious country it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and you start to count the number of churches you see everywhere. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, it's a staggering number. I mean, I, I hadn't really, I mean, I live in Cambridge, Mass, and I never paid it, you know, I, uh, up to a certain point, I hadn't paid attention to how many churches there were. And then when I started to think, when I recognized that and I started to take account, even just in my little neighborhood, there are lots of churches. And wherever you go, there are lots of churches. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, it, the fact that America is a very religious country is something that should be reflected, I think, should be reflected mm -hmm. in the in the choice of sequences uh, uh, that are included in the films. I mean, for example, Monrovia, well, you you only want to talk about the first film. Oh, you can, you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> uh, uh, Monrovia was an extremely religious community. Mm -hmm. sure. And without showing some aspect of the nature of the religious worship and services, I I wouldn't be giving uh, as thorough, or uh, I don't know, thorough is not a word I should use. I, <laughs> I, it, it wouldn't be as accurate account of uh, daily life there if I hadn't in some way suggested it, because it, it wasn't me. I mean, it, it was a religious community. So I so, thought uh, that should be acknowledged in the film. Um, and and, and I mean, I think it's perhaps a bit more prominent in Monrovia than it is in some of the other films. Although as seen is a, is a film about uh, Benedictine monastery. But I mean, in many of the films, uh, uh, there is a religious service of one sort or another. Yeah, so um, we, we definitely want to talk about the scene in more depth, but um, you, you talked about how this idea of like religion just being uh, everywhere as something that you didn't really realize in, in, until you kind of went on in your career. And, and I know you talk about your career as sort of like this lifelong course in, in adult education. So I, I'm curious if there are other things you, that... You've done your homework. Of course. <laughs> Thank that's you. That's what we do. <laughs> uh, are, are there other things, I guess, that, that have just like keep popping up that, that you go, oh, okay. Like, I didn't know this before I started, but now you kind of start to suspect or expect it where, wherever you go? Well, in almost every film, uh, I, I, I have no, ex it's not true of all of them, but most of them, I have no experience mm -hmm. with the subject matter of the film before I make the film. Right. Uh, and, and the shooting of the film is my sense of exposure to the material, and the editing is my effort to think about the consequences of that experience. But there are, are there themes like religion that kind of just like, regardless of what the, the subject at hand is, they kind of just like keep 
well, I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, I like to think in any case that I, before I start a film, I don't say to myself, well, uh, what's the religious sequence in this film going to be? Because mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I, it never occurs to me to think that way. Uh, if I come across a religious sequence, I'll certainly uh, shoot it and, you know, then decide later whether I'm going to use it or not. But I, I don't uh, consciously or deliberately set out to find it. Right. So how does that any, work? Any more, any more than I set out to find anything other than uh, to be prepared uh, to try and get whatever is happening that interests me while I'm there at the place. How does that work in a place like Monrovia where you like, how do you end up at the church, I guess? Well, I ended up at the church. Uh, uh, the woman who was the town undertaker was my consultant. And that was a very good consultant because she knew everybody in town and, and, uh, and everybody's a potential customer. Uh, 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 and uh, she was very nice and, you know, she, you know, introduced me around. Uh, and I mean, I realized rather quickly in Monrovia that it was a very religious community. Uh, so I went to several church services and, and, you know, uh, then she told me one day about the funeral. And I, so I went to the funeral. I mean, having no idea what the sermon was going to be, mm -hmm. obviously, but then the, the sermon when I heard it, it, it seemed to put together a lot of uh, uh, the experiences that I'd had uh, with the people in Monrovia. So, so I used so I used it, sure, uh, to end the film. And and I mean it. It's a really fitting end in relation to other films um, going all the way back to Follies. Uh, there seems to be an, an awareness and interest in death. Uh, obviously we have it very, we have it, you know, could argue murder on camera and, and primate or me or killing at the very least. Um, you, you have the story you like to tell of, um, the mortician telling you, see you soon. Um, just, well, that, that was a great story. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a, a good bit. I, mean, I, I, I know if I, I repeated it, but. <laughs> Hopefully not the same audience, but you know, it's one of those experiences that makes you, uh, as they say, stop and think. Uh, well, I guess you know how how do you find yourself um, engaging with death throughout these decades, and and has your your relationship to the idea you know evolved or changed at all through through the experience of making these films? I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure I know what the question is. What how has my experience changed? Just just how 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 when when you put scenes dealing with death in your films, you know, talk about you were just talking about the funeral in Monrovia. It's it's, uh, it's I guess the same question as religion, you know. It's a, it's a prominent theme. What what's the importance of it for you in in your body of work? Well, uh like most people, I'm aware of the fact that I'm going to die. Uh, and so, uh, and, you know, as the cliche goes, death is the one great common experience. Uh, 
So, I mean, it's, I don't think it's strange uh, that uh, death uh, pops up as a, uh, is a theme that cuts across a lot of the films. It is like I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm obsessed with it, but on the other hand, I, you know, particularly as I get older, I am aware of it. So, would you say that, like, uh, looking at death with your films, and we haven't gotten to near death yet, but obviously that's a great example. But is is there a way of like, not necessarily reckoning with it, but 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 facing it head on rather than well, not you, thinking about it? Well, I, you know, facing it head on. I mean, you know, <laughs> the expression I've used myself in in talking to myself or others about it. But I mean. Uh, I mean, acknowledging it is facing it head on. I mean, mm -hmm. to the, how it, you know, be, how it affects my daily life and the choices that I make. I mean, it'd be, you know, it'd be difficult to say if I wanted to say it. Mm -hmm. um, kind of talking about uh the nat like the progression of the subjects that you choose that you chose especially in these first 12 films but um we see it elsewhere too uh you know you said that there was a natural progression from going from bridgewater to high school uh have you felt similar well, that was a joke <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but but like you know i think that there is there are ideas when we look at like like primate to meat so primate welfare and meat uh i think that there are Again, like I think there, there's a joke within this series, maybe a very dark joke, but there's a progression there that I think fits. Or like Canal Zone to Maneuver, there's there's like a clear like linking um, to us at least of like this you know trilogy of remote Americans, um, and you know you have the the deaf and blind films. Are you are you clear? Are, are are you conscious or thinking about these progressions as you choose one subject and then the next? Uh, well, I, you know, I like to think I'm conscious of the connection between the films. Right. So when you're choosing your next film, then are you thinking about it in juxtaposition with what? No, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not suggesting that there's a, that, 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 that thought is dominant in my choice of the next film. Uh, but, you know, it's not. I mean, it's not unusual when you've been working on, on one kind of material uh, that you think, you know, that ideas suggest themselves that are related uh, thematically to the material you're working on. It's not the, it's never the, I mean, I don't really know what the sole reason is mm -hmm. uh, why I choose the next film. Uh, you know, my little cliche about it is that it, it's what interests me at the moment, mm -hmm. which is true, because I have to generate a certain amount of enthusiasm and interest uh, in order to uh, motivate myself to do the work that's involved. So I, you know, I have to gin up that interest and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. But it's not, I mean, its relation or their relation to the previous film is not is an element, but not necessarily the dominant element. Uh, I mean, I don't even know what the dominant element is. It, 
you know, something occurs to me and I say, okay, uh, this interests me more than that. And so I'll, yeah. give, you know, I'll give it a whirl. I'll see if I can get permission. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's, it's not as if it were, uh, uh, well thought out scheme, uh, or intellectual, uh, cons construction to, that one film follows another. There is a connection okay. between one film and another, but it may not be an obvious connection. Or, in fact, at a particular moment, I make the decision to do the next film, I may not see the connection. Okay. I mean, all, all of that has occurred and all of that is possible. And I think just speaking of connections between films, maybe maybe this is a good time to start to, to delve into them a little, a little deeper. Um, you know, the the last film of this kind of initial group we're discussing um, model seemed very fruitful for us having been watching everything that came before because there seemed to be some very conscious and intentional callbacks to earlier films we get uh, a pretty much a, a replication of the closing shot of hospital of metropolitan well it uh, is replication right right so so very conscious very intentional um, and I mean, you know, even looking, looking, uh, ahead, um, there's a shot and model of a Warhol Mao, Mao painting behind a photographer. And then in Aspen, we get a whole home full of them. Uh, and I mean, I almost lost, lost, I had to catch my breath at the end of model with the fashion show set to strike up the band, uh, calling yeah, for right. yeah. so, I, well, mean, I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, I mean, the use of strike, I mean, the fact that they pledged strike out demand has nothing to do with me. That's right. The song they chose. What had to do with me is that I recognized the connection between that scene and, and Tinnicut Follies. And, 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 by, and by in recognizing and using the connection, it also makes some connection to between the films. Uh, and the absurdity of of some of the sequences in each of the films and their relationship to each other. So would you think it's fair to say that like your what you've talked about is sort of your obsession, which which I, I'm guessing while making these films, I, I, I'm, I think of that a lot in terms of like your editing. W would you say that spending so much time on editing these films allows you to recognize these links and kind of that's what creates these like rich links and juxtapositions um, is that you just take so much, so much more time to edit than, than is usual. Well, I have no idea what's usual. Sure. Uh, uh, and, you know, you know, I, I don't keep track of when the connections occur to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of the connections occur to me right away. Uh, I mean, for example, Strike Up the Band. Obviously, when I heard Strike Up the Band, I thought, you know, God was on my side. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, because I, you know, I instantly thought of City Cut Follies. You know, it was months later that I actually edited the sequence mm -hmm. uh, and, and used it at the end of the film. But I, I always knew I was going to use it because of great good luck of 
uh, it being played at the fashion show. And can, can you talk just a bit more about those, like, when you're capturing a moment like that, that either harkens back to something previous film or an interest or just that you know is is gold right like like the mescaline vomit scene in hospital or the the racist veteran and the security guard and welfare just like the the experience of shooting that and and i guess kind of the the excitement of of capturing those types of moments yeah no i mean you i mean those kind of scenes you i like to think i recognize right away as you say as gold but there are also scenes sometimes that you think are gold that don't turn out to be, and mm-hmm. scenes that you don't think are particularly, or I don't think are particularly interesting, that turn out to be extremely useful six months later. Uh, if they're not gold, they're very important because they provide information or uh, they give a link or they're, they're a transition uh, uh, that otherwise it wouldn't be as good. So, I mean, it, it's certainly true that scenes like the throw up scene or strike up the band, you know, uh, I instantly recognize as something I'll probably use. Um, but in order to edit one of these films, I mean, I, I have to take the time to think my way through all the material and not not just the ones that uh, go, you know, that click in my mind as 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 goodies uh, or instant goodies. I mean, in order to edit one of these films, I have to delude myself into thinking that I understand what's going on in each sequence. Mm. Because if I don't think I understand, and I'm not saying my judgment is always right, but I have to think I understand it in order to decide whether or not I want to use it, how I'm going to edit it, and where I'm going to place it. Um, talking, keep, to keep talking about model, it, it seems to be like a film that is so much about aesthetics and uh, like these uh, just like cultural objects. It, it's an interesting film to not be shot in color. I know it's your, your last film, uh, before you went to color, obviously you returned to black and white a couple times. But um, did you did you want to be shooting in color at that point? No, no, yeah. I, I like black and white. Um, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I always liked black and white. I thought it looked more stylized, uh, whatever that means. But I liked it. I, mean, I, 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 uh, I switched to color with the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I thought it was important to uh, the color of the good, so to speak, was an important part of the story. Uh, the way the clothes actually looked. Um, and, 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 and then in the deaf and blind movies, uh, color was an aspect of the visual world that was absent from the lives of the student or the blind students at the mm-hmm. Talladega Institute. So when you when you when you did like mostly move to color, like there's an interesting thing that happens. We've talked a lot about like um, with these black and white films in particularly in the 70s at a time where uh, a lot of, uh, you know, American films were shot in color there. 
there's a, a weird thing that happens where it doesn't date them particularly. Like they can kind of seem out of time or anachronistic. And then that, that move to color, something like the store, you see that and you know exactly when the store takes place, right? Um, so I, I was curious if you have a perspective in terms of, I guess, what you did lose with moving away from black and white or, or on the opposite side, what you gained um, when you did approach subjects with color. Well, no, I mean, I suggested what I, what I gained in uh, the store and, 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 and in uh, Blind uh, 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 and then, uh, you know, and then I, uh, I decided to stick with color. I mean, Central Park, the color of the trees and the leaves and the flowers. I mean, I, I decided, you know, I'd stick with color and also, uh, color negative was much faster and you could <laughs> shoot in much lower light conditions with color. And when you shot in low light conditions, with black and white, it often came out to be very grainy. Uh, uh, so there was a technical reason. And then I just, it, with the exception of near death, uh, I stuck with color after that. And racetrack, right? Well, racetrack was shot in 19, I don't know, I can't remember, 1979 <laughs> or 1980. Hmm, I didn't realize. Um, I think Greatback was shot before the store. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good for us to know. Um, I think, you know, you've, uh, keeping on model for a sec, the, something you've talked about a lot when people ask you about, you know, the institutional series and, and what's beneficial to you uh, in doing uh, films about institutions is that they provide you with, with boundaries and, and, and they guide the scope of the film. Um, in model, you know, it could be argued that you you might be taking some liberties in, in expanding the scope to like Manhattan at large. And I'm curious, just kind of when you when is it you decide to uh, expand yeah, I, your scope or, or I, I, how I, you? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, I don't have any precise, rigid definition of institution yeah. that I feel bound to adhere to. Uh, I mean, uh, the institution and model was the model agency, right? And the, model, and the models worked all over the city. Um, so, and, and, and I was just following them in their work, but always coming back to uh, what was going on at the Zoli office. But I, I you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't feel any obligation to to stick to any uh, precise. In fact, I have no precise definition of an institution. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't. The question doesn't particularly interest me. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I, I, I'm I'm eager to talk uh, or ask you about a scene. Um, Excuse me. You know, I, when you guys are talking, your your picture, your faces are frozen. I don't know oh. why that is. I don't see any. Uh, <laughs> I, see I wonder why. So yeah, we we could we could see you move around. I wonder if it's a connection thing. With 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 uh, Arlen, I can sometimes see the lip movement. With Sean, not at all. And we've been fine. So, but I just wanted to let you know that. Yeah, no. Uh, just imagine us smiling. Uh, if you can't yeah. see us move, yeah. 
we're having a blast. Um, uh, so I, I'm I'm eager to talk to you or ask you about a scene. Uh, I I think this is just one that that we watched and and had a lot of questions about or a lot of questions that we were uh, eager to ask you about. One of which um, I get the feeling that your interest in in a scene was was looking at. Uh, a sort of like a society removed from the kind of institutional life that you had been looking at. Um, I know you you had been trying to get at other monasteries, uh, so clearly you had a, a an interest in um, specifically a monastery. Um, was that was that specific like insulated society life? Why you were drawn to the Benedictine monastery? Well, uh, because you know it was a closed society. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, more closed than anything else I'd done except Bridgewater, and more closed than a church, like a simple church. Well, yes, because everybody lived, you know, a simple church. People went home. I mean, they mm-hmm. came to services, but they went back to the. They had their jobs and uh, their home life uh, and their friends uh, completely outside. The church, or perhaps related to the church, but taking place, you know, in different parts of whatever community the church might be located. Whereas in the monastery, uh, the work of the monks was the life of the monastery, so it was much more intense than a church. Oh, I think. I mean, I, I say that without real, you know, not having spent that much time in a church. Uh, but that's certainly my impression. The great irony, I think, of that movie is just that it ends up, they end up, t- like, adopting uh, managerial problems and this sort of, like, stuff you see outside of this insulated, you know. Well, but it's not unusual to think that it w- that any group of people who are living and working together uh, are going to have the same kind, are going to have similar problems to other groups of people. I mean, that's... Uh, simply because it's a monastery uh, uh, doesn't mean that the behavior and many of the events that take place aren't similar to what happens out, you know, in communities outside or to people outside the monastery. Mm-hmm. That's a, a misconception of monastery life. I mean, after all the you know, as the cliche goes, they're just people and they're interacting with each other and they have the same kinds of uh, issues that any group of people have in their relationships. What was it like staying there? Like, they, they made you food and stuff, is that right? Sorry? What was, what was it like filming that, uh, that, that film and, like, you stayed there and they hosted you and, and made well, dinner? Well, they, they, they put us up, they had a guest house. And they, they put us up in the guest house, but we didn't eat there. We didn't oh, eat okay. at the monastery. Uh, no no we freshly were. peeled potatoes? We, <laughs> <laughs> nor did I help peel the potatoes, right? <laughs> no, uh, no, we ate in restaurants around Kalamazoo. Ah, which is where I went to undergrad, funny enough. Yeah. Um, um, the, the, I think a scene is a really good... Uh, a study of something that the early films seem to be particularly concerned with, which is like institutionalization and like the subjugation of individuals and, you know, talking about potato peeler, you know, that brother Wilford is this like perpetual thorn 
kind of cowlick sticking up in, in the community. Um, can, can you talk a bit about your interests in, in that theme in these films as well as evidence in a scene? My my interest in what I'm sorry. the the theme the theme of individual subjugation to the institution and and the kind of thorny nature of of bringing individuals into uh, institutional practices and and processes. I mean, I mean, I we all you know because of our relationship to other people some. We all have experiences where other people either have legitimate authority over us or feel that they do, uh, which certainly starts in the family and continues mm -hmm. through all kinds of relationships in work life or fraternal life or church life or whatever. So uh, uh, in one sense, the films are uh, provide examples of different kind of power relationships or authority relationships uh, and and and, uh, and since the uh, the brethren as they say who live in the monastery are trying to live by the rule of saint benedict which i've forgotten to their fourth or sixth century rule um, uh, uh, it's you know it's interesting to see how that plays out and how the abbot, who's the ultimate authority in the monastery, uh, uh, tries to, uh, if not impose, encourage uh, the members of the community to live up to the ideals expressed in the rule of St. Benedict, uh, which is kind of like a constitution. Uh, but, you know, any any place has rules, and one of the things I'm interested in is the relationship between how the rules are enforced and the relationship between the rules and behavior. I mean, you see that in high school. I mean, I mean, apart from the comedy of the scenes in the dean of discipline's office, or in, in some of the scenes with the uh, teachers who are imposing punishments. Uh, you, you, you. There, there are examples of the what the ideology of the school is, and how it's imposed uh, or enforced in the daily life of the students. Uh, but I mean, but we all have, you know, we all there are all certain. We all have rules we live by. We have, you know, we respect or we try to respect red lights. Uh, uh, we try not to in, uh, indulge in criminal or behavior that's, that's categorized as criminal. Uh, and, and you see the police imposing certain community value, trying to impose certain community values, however successfully or unsuccessfully they may be doing it. Uh, and you also see people who are deviating from community, community values, uh, and that deviation is called crime. Uh, or maybe call crime. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's just a, I'm not suggesting it's inadvertent in the films, but you find it, you find these questions everywhere because wherever people are, they have to, 
they live by certain rules and they have to make certain compromises, which they may or may not like. But just in order to exist with each other, they, uh, there's a recognition that that uh, negotiation and compromise are, are necessary. And that's, and you see a lot of different examples of that in all the films. Yeah, I, that makes me think of the the private, the black private in basic training that is, you know, talking about how he has no country, like this is not his country. Uh, right. That that uh, sort of bucking against that sort of but, brain. But, he, but yeah, I mean, that, that was his explicit statement of his feeling. On the other hand, he didn't go AWOL. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, talking about basic training, um, which you made in the midst of the Vietnam War, uh, I don't know if you yourself would consider or would, would openly call basic training critical, but many times I know you've gotten um, access to make something that could be considered critical, um, and you've had films you know, pass through the, the Pentagon's approval. Uh, were you ever nervous that, that some of these films weren't going to be released once they went through those like approval processes? Of course. But I, mean, I, I guess but, that happened uh, with, the, with The Garden. But. Well, The Garden is a, is a complicated story, which, isn't, which is almost resolved, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into the history of The Garden. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I hope the film will be appearing in the next year or so. Okay. Uh, 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 for basic training and for missile, I had agreed in advance that the Pentagon would have no censorship over either of those films, except in so far uh, there were violations of national security. Um, and that was a risk I was willing to take because I think at the time I made basic training, I don't know. 30 or 40 million people had gone through basic training, including me. Uh, and I didn't see how there could be any great secrets in basic training that would be shared between 30 and 40 million people. Uh, so I was willing to take that risk. And in fact, when I showed the film at the Pentagon, uh, uh, you know, there was a group of senior officers who saw it. Uh, I think up to major generals and major generals and brigadier generals and a lot of colonels, and they liked it. The only comment they had, I mean, apart from the fact they said they liked it, it was a fair, a fair film, was that they were concerned that some mother, American mothers would be upset when they discovered that drill sergeants were swearing at their beloved son. <laughs> and, and of course... I mean, I, and I, that amused me, and I knew that it had absolutely nothing with national security. So I just let them debate that among themselves. Uh, and, and in fact, they, you know, they debated among themselves, and they came to the sensible conclusion that any movie didn't illustrate or show drill sergeants swearing at recruits was unrealistic, uh, which I thought was a very sensible mm -hmm. conclusion. I mean, it was an accurate and, and sensible conclusion, and it had nothing to do with my contractual arrangement with the Pentagon. And similarly, uh, with missile, their only concern was that none of the launch codes would be revealed. <laughs> and, and I certainly didn't want to be responsible <laughs> for making the launch codes public. 
so I let them see the film and they, they saw the film and they said no launch codes are present and that was the end of it. So if, if just curious if, if they had really, you know, to borrow a phrase, like stuck to their guns on, on the swearing drill sergeants, what would the result of that have been for well, you? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, they, I, the result would have been that the movie would have appeared as it appears because the, they, they, were, they would have, you know, they were a very intelligent group of people. Uh, and I, I don't think they would, would have wanted to put the Pentagon in a position of denying the drill sergeants swore or recruits. Hmm. I mean, the, the literature, the army, if you read the literature of the First World War, the Second World War, all the movies about the army, I mean, it's just characteristic. I mean, it's characteristic behavior. It may or may not be a good idea, uh, but it's common. So, I mean, they, they, were, they were too sophisticated to, I mean, no, nobody even suggested that I cut it out. They talked about it among themselves. Gotcha. Um, uh, just a quick, I know we've talked about meat already, but just a quick question. Were, were you uh, familiar with, with Franju's Blood of the Beast? Had you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. I saw, um, I saw it a long time ago. I lived in Paris in the 50s. I, I don't remember. I didn't remember it very well. And I, yeah. and I haven't seen it since. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but I, I, I don't. It wasn't particularly in my mind when I sure. Made mm. it. Um, I want to talk about Canal Zone, which I think is just like a terrific movie. Um, but uh, did you feel when you were shooting there? Do, could you feel a certain tension uh, with like between the Panamanians and and the white Americans? A person. Well, I didn't quite get the question. Sorry. A certain well, we, what be, between, tension. A certain tension between Panamanians. Well, yeah, a little bit, but not yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. But don't don't forget, this was just around the time that the canal was turned back mm -hmm. to Panamanians. And the negotiations to return the canal to Panama were going on at the time I made the movie. Right. And I, I think the canal went back, I don't remember exactly, but a year or so later. So okay. it, it was the end of the American uh control and presence or major presence in the canal zone and what was that uh i guess timeliness of it a factor in your being interested in doing a film about it because no no i mean i i just you know i don't know why i i had the idea it might be interesting to make a movie about the canal zone what interested me was a community of Americans living outside the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I, I wasn't especially interested in the politics of, of the canal, but more what this American community in Panama was like. And, and, and the relationship between their lives and lives in small towns in America. Mm. Um. So, and that's also the first film of yours that approaches three hours. Uh, obviously, Welfare was 240, but um, was that, was the length of that film by any way, like, affected by the reception of Welfare or or by getting, like, this five-year deal? No. No, the length of the film was determined by 
by you know what's going on in the editing. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I never set out to make a film at a given length. The film, sure. comes out, the film comes out the way it comes out, and so far PBS has been very generous with me, and they've always run the film at the length that I've delivered it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I don't set out to make a seventy-three minute film or a six-hour film. Uh, I set out to make the best film I can based on the material that I have. So when, uh, and it, if it comes out 73 minutes, well and good. And if it comes out six hours, well and good. So what is it when thinking about this Abbott and Costello scene, you know, that you show <laughs> the Spanish dub of, and then it juts up against this KFC ad um, and it lingers for quite a while. And speaking, thinking about the length, what is the what is the idea for you to to keep that on for quite a while? What feels like uh, I don't know a couple minutes at least of just watching this Spanish dub of Abbott and Costello. Watching what I, I didn't quite hear you. Sorry. When you when you show the uh, TV in the waiting room, uh, showing Abbott and Costello uh, in the Spanish dub of that, and then it goes into like this KFC ad, and that that Abbott and Costello movie stays on the screen for quite a while. So as we're talking about sort of like the film is the length that it needs to be, what, it, what is, I wondered if you're able to talk to the idea of keeping Abbott and Costello in a Spanish dub, which is very funny, I think. Um, well, on the you've answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> Um, and in, in Canal Zone, we get a lot of movie marquees, and, and I'm just curious um, how you uh, and Brain spent spent your, your evenings in the Canal Zone uh, not shooting. Watching rushes. Watching, watching <laughs> okay. What, what about in, what about in, in uh, the Sinai Field Mission? Did you were they did they ever invite you to party with them? Pass you the boot? Well, in, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of scenes in Sinai Field Mission that take place at night. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of struck by the bar scene. Uh, it was like the first time I had seen a, a, a bar scene uh, in one of your films. And for some reason, that just kind of took me uh, off guard. Well, and, uh, I'm sorry it took you off guard. <laughs> no, I loved it. I, I, I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, kind of keeping on with these three films, uh, I, I'm curious about the editing in uh, Maneuver, um, and I can't remember if it's similar in uh, Sinai Field, Field Mission as well, um, where there are instances that seem particularly like fictional edits, right? Like, you know, the darts, I think it's, is it darts, uh, where you show like somebody uh, releasing it and then you show it landing on the bullseye, or like in Maneuver, you show a plane taking off, you show a crew in the plane and then a land. Obviously knowing you're only a three-person crew, you're not you're not on the plane that just took off, um, so yeah. So I'm I'm kind of like, but you know, the grace of your your editing, which you know mimics fictional film editing. I I, I think that maybe could go uh, under or underthought about, which is maybe probably part well, of. Well, I mean, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, I I never think of it as mimicking fictional film editing. I think it was a shot that's absolutely necessary for purposes of continuity. Mm -hmm. uh, but, because it, you know, it, it it's a smoother cut if you show the plane taking off, uh, and I don't think it's uh, misrepresentation 
No. Because all C-130s look alike. Uh, uh, so uh, if that's the right designation of the plane, I think it is. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, I knew that I would probably use some shots of the trip over to Europe. Uh, and uh, so I went to the airport. I mean, I, I don't know if it was the day we left or the previous day and got some shots of planes taking off. Hmm. I, I mean, I don't think that's, uh, uh, I don't think it affected the behavior of the plane. Yeah, it's sticking with editing here. Um, you know, writers have come up with various metaphors for, for your style, including like mosaics or nodal. Um, but, but what really struck me about maneuver is it it seemed uncharacteristically linear in terms of like a narrative progression. Um, I'm curious if if that was something you had wanted to do, and this presented an opportunity. Was it inherent to the material? Uncharacteristic of what? I didn't. I missed the the end of the of of just the way pre your previous films have been structured you know i i don't they're certainly narrative but i don't know that you would say they have a linear progression necessarily the way maneuver does from from kind well, of well maneuver has a linear progression because i i follow a maneuver from the beginning to the end i mean uh so it's just inherent to the to the subject inherent to the subject matter uh you know, there wasn't the same, I mean, in in high school, there wasn't the same opportunity. I mean, I, mean, I could have made a film about a day in the life of a high school student, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, from dawn to dusk, uh, but that isn't what I did. So, I mean, Maneuver had a beginning, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that was a response to uh, the event. I mean, to the, to the Maneuver. Have you uh, had that film on your mind at all as things have been going on this week with Ukraine and NATO? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I've had war in my mind and the horrible destructiveness of war and the fact that it's, I mean, Putin seems to be, have no concern about uh, killing probably thousands of people in the service of his... Uh, uh, fantasy about greater Russian glory and his fear of democratic ideas coming too close to Russia. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, hard uh, question to, to follow, but uh, <laughs> maybe to deviate a little bit. Uh, when, when we watched Juvenile Court, the, that was one of the films that I think I've, I, felt not as not as a flaw by any means but like i felt the presence of the crew there which i think w maybe was a product of the close quarters that you were working in and also that you don't cut as much of brains movements like you you let them kind of just like breathe and move as as they are um i wondered if you could talk about that or like well but that that was true primarily well if, i mean it if i don't if I don't have cutaways, I have to keep pans. Right. And sometimes I, you know, I didn't have cutaways. I mean, it was particularly true in the courtroom uh, when we had to cover uh, the, the district attorney 
the defendant's lawyers, the defendant, uh, the witness, if there was a witness, and the judge. Uh, so uh, I, I used cutaways occasionally of the audience, but I had to leave uh, a lot of pans because I said, you know, I don't, if I can't avoid leaving them, I do, but sometimes I don't have the material uh, to cut them out. Mm -hmm. Do, um, this initial series um, we've covered thus far spans, you know, uh, four uh, cinematographers, but obviously most prominent is Brain, and then onto your current collaborator, uh, Davey. I'm, I'm curious what you feel those two specifically brought uh, uh, that were different for your films uh, between the ways they worked and, and their aesthetics? Well, the, the, the way they work is very similar. Uh, they came, come out of similar uh, traditions of uh, documentary filmmaking. Uh, and, I mean, aesthetics is a big fancy word. Uh, uh, and I prefer to think of the kinds of decisions that we have to make and, and, and the way that sequences get shot. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what the concentration is on. Not, so do you have, not, not any, uh, highfalutin idea of film, film aesthetics. And I don't think we've ever talked about that. So you, you didn't talk about like zoom ins, uh, like preferences. Oh, we talked about, Oh, we talked about it, but, you know, figure out when it's necessary. But mm -hmm. you can't figure out when it's necessary as a matter of principle. You make the decision of a, of a zoom at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and, and often, as I said a moment ago, when I can cut, when I can cut the zoom, I do. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 I can't, you know, I haven't always had the material uh to cut it because sometimes there's no things go on so quickly that you can't pick up cutaways or you don't have the right kind of cutaways the cutaways don't work uh to cover the zoom uh, so you leave the zoom but i i don't when i have the choice which is not always the case i i will cut the zoom so a lot of it just came just came down to trust in uh whoever you were working with um, and sort of like the symbiotic understanding of what you were looking for? Well, uh, symbiotic is too fancy a word for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we, you know, we, we talk a lot about the way I like to have the film shot. And we, mm -hmm. watch, we watch the rushes together every night when we're not too tired. Uh, and uh, so we arrive at a consensus. And during the shooting, we're constantly looking at each other. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, you know, I told, you know, I could suggest to John and Bill what kind of shot that I want. And sometimes they make the decision on their own. Sure. Um, one thing that you, I know you've talked a lot about, like when you move to digital, which is kind of getting out of the realm that we're talking about, but, um, you talked a lot about like sort of the pros of color grading and, and the cons of the quick editing, but I don't know if I've seen you talk about the change in aspect ratio or if you've given it much thought to how it changed anything, if it did. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've thought about it and I, 
uh, and the aspect ratio has changed uh, several times. Uh, but it's just, uh, it's a decision that I made in conjunction with whoever the cameraman was on the particular project about the nature of the project and mm. how it would look with one aspect ratio or another. I mean, now, now the, you're... The, the feature film that I just did is 225. The short, the short that you did, the French short? Yeah. Mm. So do you, I mean, do you feel that there's anything gained uh, in, in, you know, wider formats that... Uh, well I, 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 well, I mean, I, I, I don't think of it in general. I think of it in relation to a particular film. Mm -hmm. I think it worked very well for this this fiction film I've done, which is called A Couple. Um, yeah, I think it was appropriate. Uh, I, I don't think it would have been appropriate for some of the other documentaries. I mean, uh, many of which are shot at 133. Would you ever consider doing another film in one three three? Yeah, of course. Cool. <laughs> um, I'll take it. It, it. While we're kind of talking about the uh, cosmetics of, of film, is there is there any interest in doing uh, official restorations of your work, especially some of these earlier works? Well, I, I'm doing that now. Oh, cool! Not really? Yeah. All. all I'm making DCPs of all from all the films that were shot on film, which is I think about 32. So um, uh, they're being restored and and regraded. So are you like consulting on that process? Well, I'm participating in it. Okay, cool. What what uh what sort of distribution would those restorations have? I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that it will rekindle interest in the films because now now the old films can be shown in movie theaters which they couldn't be before for years because movie theaters don't have 16 projectors mm -hmm. so it'll be possible you know and and i i think it's going to stimulate more interest in vod or an svod mm -hmm. do you envision Perhaps after a repertory run, those transfers making it to Blu-ray. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, they'll all be. I'll have Blu-rays of all of them as well. Cool. But the DVD market is, yeah. Really... Well, I, I was about to say I'm, I got to slow my roll in, in picking up the Zipporah DVDs if there are all these Blu-rays on the horizon. Well, I mean, there'll <laughs> still be another six months or so before they're available. Um, a question, uh, just out of curiosity, have you, have you ever had a subject in one of your films, like recognize you as Fred Wiseman, the filmmaker? You know, I don't remember. Oh, I think, <laughs> I think for in near death. Hmm. Really? Not Yeah. Some of the doctors. And, and I guess similarly, you know, aside from the sort of famous adversarial examples have any subjects uh, reach out to you after the release of a film in, in kind of a, a more positive manner? Oh, yeah. Often I get a letter, you know, thanking me for making the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, it's extremely rare that, in fact, I can't think of any example other than Titty Cut Follies. And maybe, well, 
sitting at Follies, no inmate or member of an inmate's family ever complained about the film. Right. Some of the professional staff were involved in the case against the film. Uh, and in high school, students at Northeast High made T-shirts that said Fred Wiseman was right. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and when the faculty first saw the film, they liked it. Uh, and when the reviews appeared, they got defensive. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, Same with your views, and, right. And, and, I, and I think for all the other films, uh, uh, I've had no problem. Uh, the, well, garden, the garden issue is a complicated one, but it wasn't no much, not so much a problem with uh, participants. One of the one of the cool things I think a cool discovery for us was uh, this debate, this televised debate that you did after Primate. Um, the what? The the like debate that you had um, after Primate. Oh, um, GBH. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, it was. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, and also. It, Whoa, um, do you want to ask me a question about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What, what, is that something that that you think that you would consider doing, like if it happened today? Like, say it's say like a debate rose to that level over city hall. Would you have any interest still in like appearing on on TV to debate uh, the work, your work? Uh, it, de it would depend on the circumstances. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, primate. You know, uh, so I remember the participants in that were somebody from the from Yorkies uh, and uh, uh, someone from MIT uh, and, and me uh, talking about, they were talking about the value of primate. I mean, I don't actually, it's been so long. I don't even remember the contents of the debate. Um, but I, you know, I like to talk in colleges or universities about the films to some extent. I don't like to do it too much because if I do it too much, it gets stale. Uh, but I like to do it from time to time. But um, and I, but it's rare, uh, and, and I like that about the primate discussion, that one gets into a discussion of the substantive issues that the film deals with. And that's, that's always interesting. I guess uh, you know I'm I'm harping on model because it's it's a favorite now. Um, but talking about the substantive issues, there was something really striking to me about a potential comment on um, framing and representation and uh, construction and artifice, and maybe a recognition that photographers and cameramen and model were doing something maybe not wholly dissimilar from what you do in your films, albeit for, you know, very different goals. Uh, and I think of, you know, scenes during the commercial shoot where you're kind of cutting to people on the street observing the shoot who, you know, by the the looks on by the way they look, you know, would never appear in front of that photographer's lens. Um was that of of something you recognize and, and were interested in commenting upon as part of like just the the constructed nature of documentaries? That's why the the shots that you're describing are in the film. 
Great. I, I, I kind of going off that, one of the things that, you know, uh, a lot of people talk about like sort of their fans of yours talk about their sort of like dream Wiseman projects. And one of the things that is always like, I wonder what like Wiseman's movie would look like. But after watching Maneuver, which, you know, plays with the language of war cinema as and then going to model i enjoyed that i you kind of get a sense of uh of what that movie would look like i'm sorry i don't know what the question is. <laughs> oh it's no question just, <laughs> at this point just just admiring your work yeah. um, Gushing. But, uh, but i do have a question kind of um as we're i guess winding down a little bit um we talked earlier about like sort of like the the subjugation of of different people in your films and and this in these early films we see a lot of like well I ideas. talked about the I believe I talked about the effort at subjugation and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't sure. mm-hmm. and we see uh, diminished autonomy whether you know very explicitly with animals this loss of autonomy um, and I know Barry Keith Grant has said that he thinks that as your work has gone on it's gotten more compassionate and perhaps optimistic, uh, which is debatable. But um, do you feel that that lines up, lines up with any sort of like personal outlook uh, when you look back at, at these last 50 years? No. So Barry Keith Grant is just way <laughs> off, way off the market. No, I just go from yeah. one film to the other. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I hope, uh, I certainly try to avoid any suggestion I'm making vast generalizations of course or, or generalizations for that matter vast or not mm-hmm. okay it's getting a bit late here yes sure i uh, i guess we'll we'll just close then by by asking if uh if there's another nonfiction film on the horizon for you well i have some ideas but uh i don't know yet depends i'm not it's hard to do my kind of documentary when people were wearing masks of course. Uh, because you know i've noticed the face is important uh so uh imagine that uh i don't you know i i mean i, I i'm waiting to get a good idea for another fiction movie all right okay well uh fred thank you so much for for giving us time and and letting us ramble um it, we're, oh, we're, me. We're, i was rambling too <laughs> <laughs> uh, well uh yes thank you we're, we're very grateful this is, okay this thank is, you for doing uh doing the series oh, of, course, of course yeah good, good night see you have a good one bye that was pretty good i think <laughs> yeah Thank you.